Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new edition of Thinking Aloud about film. Uh, in the past few months, uh, we've been covering a series of films on Mubi uh, called Mexical Every Day, The Many Seasons of Mexican Cinema, uh, which raised a whole series of interesting issues and which I wanted uh, Dolores Tierney to join us and explore some of them. Uh, so Dolores is a professor of film uh, at the University of Sussex. She's written extensively on Mexican cinema, uh, including the work of Emilio Fernandez in popular cinema and transnational cinema. So I think really the best pla placed uh, person in the country to, uh, to get us to think once again about the series as a whole and what the individual films represent. Uh, my hope is once more uh, we highlight this series of very entertaining films uh, and that people take the opportunity of, of seeing them. Uh, so welcome Dolores. <laughs> Hi Jose, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Um, so first of all, you've now seen all the films, haven't you? Yeah, um, I'd seen some of them a long time ago, but I was I rewatched all of them and I'd never seen a couple, which uh -huh. is actually quite significant to not have seen a couple. Well, what what did you think of the series as a whole of the you know the program? I thought, of the films? I thought it was excellent. So I think the earliest film is Trota Calles, Streetwalker, yeah. nineteen fifty one, and the latest is um, the Batwoman. Yes. Um, 1968, La Mujer Murciélago. And I thought it represented a great variety, a great kind of time span. Um, almost no, you know, continually talked about auteurs in that group, which was great, mm -hmm. you know. So we've got mostly industry directors. Um, none of those films are really canonized as part of the Mexican cultural kind of patrimony that you constantly do see mm. uh, repeated. So I thought it was a really great selection, uh, you know, and, and really does highlight a shift in how we're thinking about Mexican cinema, you know, pre the 1970s, 80s, 90s. Mm. Well, what I, what I want to do is go through each of them chronologically uh, beginning with the earliest one, uh, and then just kind of, you know, think about what issues kind of they give rise to, or I'll certainly bring up, you know, things that I found really interesting about them and that I'd like to know more. Uh, so the first one is, is Trota Calles, yeah. uh, which I thought was a truly radical film, actually. So, you know, both an entertaining melodrama of the period but actually something, you know, uh, uh, more significant than that, like truly radical in the way that it positions marriage as an equivalent to prostitution. So can you tell us a little bit, and, and I'm very keen on knowing more about the director. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about the director and the film? So Matilde Landetta only made um, three feature films. Um, um, Trota Calles is one of them. And um, she was often an assistant director to male directors. And she made three films which were all radical. You know, the other two films, Lola Casanova and La Negra Angustias, mm. are both also quite radical. Um, and you're right to say that Trata Calles is, you know, both a melodrama of the era, 
you know, it's it's following a similar kind of narrative, mm. but radical in the way it positions itself in relation to that narrative. And the narrative would be of the fallen woman, the woman who has ended up as a sex worker be- without any fault of her own. Mm. Um, so these films um, are sometimes thought of as very conservative because they represent sex work as um, the result of woman, uh, some kind of flaw in the women, whether it was a weakness for a particular bad kind of guy or something else. Um, but these, there's lots of other narratives that Trotakai is, is one of, you know, and other canonized films of this genre would be uh, Las Abandonadas, The Abandoned Women, or Salon Mexico, uh, which is which are both by Emilio Fernandez. So these are quite conservative films um, in terms of their narrative. Mm-hmm. Now, we might have been able to even go to the canonized uh, cabaret films, cabareteras, which is another word for these fallen women films, um, because they're often said around cabarets. Um, we might be able to say that even the very canonized cabaret films, not Matilde Landetta's, but the ones by Emilio Fernandez and Alberto Gaut, it's a great film called Aventurera. Mm-hmm, um, yeah, which I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> so um, they they have very conservative narratives often, which are about women who um, end up on the streets because they've been seduced by a man and sex work is all that they've got left. Um, and sometimes they're controlled by pimps. This happens in Salon Mexico. We can think of even these films, if we kind of rethink melodrama as a kind of a woman's genre, we've been able to reclaim even the very conservative ones in a way and think about how they give female subjectivity and position, how they actually aren't so morally dichotomous and show often that this kind of very shady world that's built on sex work is very interconnected with a very respectable Mexico. So, you know, through camera work and other things. So we've already been able to reclaim that. But even in that context, Trotakai is streetwalker, which, which is what's Trotakayas means, right, is very radical because of the conversations it has around, um, you know, I, I, I'm the very, there's a, there are two sisters, right, so for anyone who's not seen the film, one is married to a banker who's much older than her, another has a pimp called Rodolfo, they were separated a long time ago, they suddenly come back together, um, but the conversations they often have kind of lay bare the economic transaction that is uh, sex work and marriage, which is kind of what you were hinting at. And Matilde Landetta was being quite radical in her script. Mm. So not necessarily in the camera work, mm. of the, um, but in the script, which points out uh, sex in exchange for money being at the heart of marriage, marriage itself, not as a Catholic institution, but as a economic transaction. So the Catholic church and the morality of it, which is often implicitly evoked by a lot of the traditional cabaret films is not at the center of um, years. I was uh, re-watching it this morning and it's much more explicit in its reference to sex work, mm. right? So the sex work in the, conservative cabaret films cab- uh, like Aventurera or um, uh, Las Abandonadas was implied mm. because these women were in cabarets and you sometimes saw them going off places. But in Trotacalles, 
there's an incredible kind of opening scene which is played against the credits where we see women and men but just from the knees downwards mm-hmm. standing on the street yeah mm-hmm. um and that camera work which shows just the knees down and the kind of uh, a man approaches a woman's a woman a woman's feet they're very high heeled stilettos and the shoes themselves are like a kind of uh metonymic kind of indication of sex work mm-hmm. they come to kind of together as if they're coming to an agreement and then they walk off down and down into a stairwell and then there's ellipses and they come back out again and the woman remains on the street as if for another another trick mm. right so there's all those kinds of things that make it quite radical in this camera work in the conversations that go on there isn't the kind of extensive moralizing um miroslava who plays the kind of rich sister is is a bit like, yeah, you know, I'm married to this rich man. I get my jewels from him. I'm very practical, you know. Mm. It's it's quite interesting, and it's kind of, it's kind of proto-feminist in lots of, in lots and lots and lots of ways, but well, it no, still no. has some sleepy melodrama in it as well. Enough mm. for it to be a genre film, but mm. it still has these conversations and this explicitness about the connection to sex work. I was Go ahead. incredibly surprised to see it. And I thought it a sign of a kind of um, narrowness and also a, a kind of discrimination, actually, that, that it's not a better known film. Yeah, I mean, one of the arguments that you often have about programming films by women in syllabi is, well, where are these films? You know, women didn't make films <laughs> during the classic era and so on. But here's an example of a film made by a woman on a really yeah. feminist topic. And actually, it is absolutely puzzling and you know bewildering why it's not better known. And I just wonder if you have any ideas. Right, so I'm going to tell you why. Um, but also, at the same time, I'm going to uh, give a quick plug for um, Alyssa Rashkin's book, hmm. where she talks about, it's called The Country of Which We Dream, and she talks about female Mexican directors. Hmm. She has a lovely chapter on Matilde Landetta. Um, I'm going to tell you why. So after this film, or after the series of three films, Matilde Landetta was blacklisted mm. and never really worked again in the Mexican industry. And she why? Had to, why was she blacklisted? Um, I think it was likely the radical... I mean, so I met her in the 90s, mm. and she told me they didn't want... The, I, she couldn't sell a script. They didn't want her. The oh. Mexican film industry was quite closed shop anyway, mm. right? Um, and continued to be so. Um, and she just wasn't allowed to work anymore. Right. So there were almost no female directors. And so the reason, yeah, so the reason we don't know more about her films, I think, has a lot to do with several things. Firstly, Latin American cinema, right, still itself was quite dismissive of the classical films. So the kind of late 60s, 70s rejection of classical filmmaking as as bourgeois, conservative, complicit versus a valorization of art and auteur cinema hung over much longer in Latin American film studies itself. So there's a a devaluation of it itself within Mexican film culture, right, Mm -hmm. of all of them. And then when in the late 80s or during the 80s and 90s, there was a re-evaluation of classical Mexican cinema by Mexican cinema 
critics themselves. They went to the male directors, to the auteurs, mm. to the uh, explicitly nationalist texts that they could hold up as evidence of a strong cultural patrimony. So they, it was all about picking those texts which fitted the narrative. Right. And so so the class, the first classical Mexican films I saw at the cinema were, were at the BFI in the 90s, like 1995 when I was at Warwick. Um, and they were series that were Emilio Fernandez driven films. So it was very much this nationalist idea of a certain kind of director and filmmaking. And it, into that did not fit Matilde Landetta and her radical filmmaking at all. You know, so and and still I find that classical Mexican cinema and the classical cinemas of Latin America are quite marginalized outside of those who can speak Spanish, right? Because they weren't subtitled, they weren't they weren't distributed at film festivals. So what goes around the world and is seen is usually determined by the national film culture. And I think people don't necessarily tend to realize that. So this great series, you know, that was part of the broader Locarno mm -hmm. series, which had I don't know how many films did that that uh, Locarno um, kind of collection have. I think it was curated by a, a German critic. Is that right? I don't know. Yeah, so there was a, a bigger Locarno kind of um, series, which these five films all came from, mm -hmm. which was curated by a Mexican critic, Olaf Muller, I'm going to say, but I'm not 100% sure I can check that. Um, that was very much put together with him going to Mexico and looking, let, let me look for these non-canonical films. Let me look for these directors that we don't see. So Trota Calles was one of those films that was recovered. But in order for it to be that, mm. in part, it has to be presented by the Filmoteca, you know, the, or the Cineteca Nacional, the uh, Fosine, all those cultural agencies in Mexico have to have a certain getting behind this. So... Things have shifted in Mexico about what is our national film culture, but it, it took a while to right. get beyond let's present art or her cinema or cinema that's nationalist that will fit the kind of valorization of our own identity as, as Mexican filmmakers. Yeah, so it's it's easier to plug Emilia Fernandez into that than it is to plug radical feminist Matilde Landetta or proto-feminist, you sure. know, who's kind of making this quite different film, but a film that still fits in so, so many ways within what genre filmmaking was at the time. It just mm. has these great dialogues, this great cross-cutting, some really great, great moments in it. Sorry, I feel like I'm going on a lot. <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm fascinated to listen to you, but we do have, I think, five other films to talk about. So okay, I'm going yes, to hold you uh, uh, to that. So, um, the the next one that I want to I want uh, to hear from you on is Stranger Than Love, uh, uh, and and for two reasons, you know. First, it also has Miroslava in it, uh, and so we didn't even talk about Miroslava. Miroslava, and uh, um, it's a transnational film. Yeah, so I, I you know I'd like to hear from you on both of those topics in relation to that film. Okay, right. So, I so I was talking a lot in the, this previous answer about um, classical Mexican cinema presented as a very nationalist endeavor, right? These are national themes, national directors. But the truth is that classical Mexican cinema 
for multiple reasons, became very much a transnational endeavor in the 1940s. Mm. In many ways, it was always a transnational endeavor. You know, the people who founded classical Mexican cinema, the incipient kind of pre-classical moment of the early 30s, a lot of them had worked in Hollywood on the on the Spanish language cinema or as extras or as gaffers. They'd gone off People like Chano Urueta, who we're going to talk about in a second, they'd spent time in Hollywood. They came back to the back, came back to Mexico. Lots of the actresses, Lupita Tovar, the Fernandez brothers, uh, lots uh, the ones who did the sound and who uh, started off Santa. They all came back from Hollywood, kind of having apprenticed informally to work in this incipient industry. Um, and then in the early forties, when uh, World War Two is happening. Against their own wishes, the Hollywood studios are asked to help out Mexican classical cinema, you know, in a, um, in favor of Argentina. Argentina was a neutral country. Mm. The United States, uh, the Office of um, uh, OCIAA, I can't remember what that sounds like, but it's kind of the Office for Overseas um, Interests or something. We're kind of like, will you help out classical Mexican cinema? Because the propaganda value of classical Mexican cinema versus uh, a quite neutral Argentine cinema, which was the other big industry, would be huge because we need to win the hearts and minds of Latin America. So this is World War II. Um, so classical Mexican cinema gets all this industrial help, begins to make really good films, right? Mm. And you've got directors like Emilio Fernandez, who'd been in Hollywood, Gabriel Figueroa, who'd apprenticed with Greg Toland. You've got Dolores del Rio, who's mm. also coming straight back from Hollywood from a massive career, which mm. had gone from 1926 up to 40. Um, you've got Pedro Armendariz, who grew up in the United States and was bilingual, mm. or coming back to make films like Maria Candelaria and Flor Silvestre, these kind of big films. So classical Mexican cinema is capital intensive. So you've got some Argentines starting to come over, Libertad, Lamarck and others, because the Argentine industry is starting to kind of stall at this point. Cuba did have a kind of, in the 1930s, it had Pecusa, it had a kind of a national film industry. But mm. by the 1940s, it really wasn't strong enough and couldn't make films by itself. It needed to make these kind of co-productions. So you've got Cubans starting to come over in the 40s. Nino Sevilla comes over in mid forties. Um, you've got uh, Maria Antonieta Pons. These are actresses. Uh, they begin to star in cabaret films, right? Miroslava is um, um, not. She is living in Mexico. She's a, a family at Eastern European. They're refugees, I think. Actually, I can't quite remember when she arrived, but I think it might have been the thirties. Do you remember when Miroslava? kind of had she grew up in Mexico in a way to the point where she is bilingual so she's from a different country mm. so this Mas Fuerte Que El Amor is an Argentine director um making a Mexican Cuban co-production right mm. so these Mexican Cuban co-productions happened a lot in the 1940s I'm sorry into the 50s um and it was the only way really Mexico um could make I mean, Cuba could really make films. And Mexico wanted to make films with Cuba because it very much loved the Afro-Cuban rhythms and the Afro-Cuban music. So Cuban musicians have been working in classical Mexican cinema like um, throughout the 1940s in a lot of these cabaret films. They were often the bands. So when you see a band in a lot of 
movies like uh, Salon Mexico or uh, Aventurera, that which is 1950. Um, these are often Cuban musicians, quite mm -hmm. famous and well-known Cuban musicians. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of a need to industrially work between these different countries. It's partly cultural. We want to borrow those rhythms but it's also partly economic and Mexico itself is the strongest economically. It's doing well in the markets around Latin America, mm. up to 40% in countries like Uruguay and other places that have almost no filmmaking at all going on. It's kind of almost, it's not, but it's almost challenging Hollywood hegemony, mm. you know, against Hollywood's best interest. But during the war, it gave all this help and it and that help continues to bear fruit, even if it stopped post-World War II. Mm. So there's what we talk about as Mexico's, Mexico's national cinema was never national. It was always transnational in terms of personnel, in terms of technical help but very much in terms of that cooperation between different uh, different in industries. So individual filmmakers like Tulio de Michel, the director of Mas Fuerte Que El Amor, do end up kind of going on a kind of walkabout. And individual actors are also making films in Venezuela, or mm. they're making films in Argentina too, or Brazil, mm. or they're making films in Cuba. Yeah. So there's a lot of mobility um in the in the in the kind of like you know classical late classical era okay and there's a really uh, great article if anyone wants to read it by laura padalski uh -huh. um, and it's called i wrote it down because that's what i was having a look at to kind of remind myself it's called negotiating differences and it's about pre-revolutionary cuban filmmaking but it focuses a lot on these kind of mexican co-productions how heavily they were invested in music mm. um because you know mas fuerte que el amor does have a lot of these kind of moments of dance and mm. and um kind of musical kind of musical extravagance although it's a, a melodrama you know mm. it's not a cabaret film but it uses those kind of them all being at a bar to kind of have these moments of spectacle Hmm. Yeah. I want to move to uh, El Esqueleto de la Señora Morales, the skeleton of Mrs. Morales, because that is often ranked as one of the greatest films of all time. You grimace. <laughs> no, I didn't grimace. I didn't. No, no, no. No, I love that film. I no. mean, I, tell, I'm gonna, I, had not, I had not seen El Esqueleto de la Señora Morales, and I thought I had, you mm. know. So it was quite a shock to me to kind of be watching this macabre film um, which is so funny and so so tortured at some points. Mm. So it's kind of um, so people often talk about, you know, Bunuel went to Mexico and he made these completely different films that were not like any films that anyone was making. And it feels like this feels like such a Bunuelian film to mm. a certain extent. Focus on the the crow and the focus on objects and the kind of atonal kind of um soundtrack at different points mm. it's 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 a really incredible film. and it's kind of i feel like i've seen all films that a bit of come out of classical because in my films that i haven't seen i think i've seen them mm. right i think oh i must have seen that and then i sit down to watch this film and i haven't right i wanted to tell you that i got my like mexican cinema book out all right okay <laughs> which which came out in the mid 90s so it came out in that period when i was getting to know classical mexican cinema and the only films i was seeing 
on those circuits you know i've seen i saw some retrospectives in paris i saw i retrospect in paris i saw one in in london and then some more the next year i wasn't seeing a lot of the films that <clears throat> we're talking about today but el esqueleto de la señora morales is the one film that's in this book ah right? and, and, and what does it say i mean it's, there's not a lot in it but it's at least listed in right. the title so it's kind of interesting how a lot of the films that i ended up I mean, I was looking, you know, I'll just have a look and see what they say, because this book is so, it's almost falling apart, my copy. Mm. But the fact that it, it, it it's maybe it is a canonical film and it's quite interesting um, to think about that kind of macabre humour and also how it, you know, in a very Bonwellian way, it burlesques and makes fun of and parodies the Catholic Church and oh. Piousness as a kind of, uh, it's a very, you know, interesting film from that point of view, which I, I don't think I was as aware that it did all those things. I just knew it was a kind of a macabre film and I, I thought I'd seen it, but I hadn't. Mm. Um, I well, can't tell you. Go ahead. It's very interesting because it is listed in the top 100 films in the history of Mexican cinema. It was voted 19th. Uh, and uh, it's based on the Arthur Machen short story, The Islington Mystery. And of course, it stars, again, pursuing the um, transnational theme, uh, uh, Arturo de Cordova, but also Amparo Rivelles, who's one of the biggest stars of Spanish cinema in the 1940s. And yeah, so I didn't even mention the Spanish actors and actresses that end up in classical Mexican cinema, too, from mostly fleeing Spain. As yeah. well, um, uh, kind of recipes from Frank with Spain. Go ahead. And it's interesting in your reference to Buñuel because, of course, it's written by Luisa Corith, who wrote The Exterminating Angel. Yeah, pretty much the same year, I think. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 so yeah. you know, kind of there is a connection there uh, to Buñuel that, that's an interesting one. But for me, you know, this was a discovery. I thought it was like, a, you know, a truly kind of great film, so interesting in all kinds of ways, you know, and so entertaining to watch. And it's kind of, you know, surprising again how these things circulate. That one hasn't really heard of it, or I hadn't heard of it, even though it appears. I think. I think, <laughs> I think. What's really interesting about Mexican cinema is that, um, I, from now on, you know, there's there's always been okay on another level. I bumped into people who have no interest in Mexico, no interest in the Spanish language, and yet can quote to me a, quite a lot of the films that have subsequently become cult films, right? Sure, yes. Because they are horror-inflected or they sure. are macabre or odd. So um, they're coming at it from a completely different angle that I've now kind of got into as well. Mm. So even within this, um, I, I think from now on, it's almost as if I think that cult perspective on classical Mexican cinema is going to dominate for quite a while mm. because this growing kind of interest from the Indicator series and various others are bringing out all these collections sure. of films, um, you know, which are some of the others that we're going to talk about. Um, uh, what's it called? Um, El Espejo de la Bruja. El Espejo de la Bruja, which we'll most probably talk about in a second. Um, but... Um, but, which is by Channel Urueta, who's one of those uh, guys that I talked about. He's an industry director, was kind of hanging out in Hollywood in the late 20s with Emilio Fernandez and a whole bunch of others. They were all sharing a house, yes. supposedly. Roberto Gabaldon, he was there too with them. Um, you know, so these 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 are industry-made films, quickies, made in several weeks, but they're starting to kind of dominate 
a completely different discourse, which is the cult cinema discourse, but they're better known mm. because they have no kind of, you know, they they have no, they're not global cinema. Uh-huh. They're not classical melodrama. They're a completely other kind of category. How interesting. Um, let, let's talk about the Batwoman, just to pursue this idea. I know that we're glossing over El Espejo de la Bruja, but uh, in terms of what you're saying of, you know, cult and industry and so on, the Batwoman is such an interesting film. Yeah. So I, uh, so again, that would be a film where I've met people who are cult cinema people, not interested in Spanish filmmaking or that history, but have this lovely appreciation of this film that circulates on an alternative network. It's quite niche. Mm-hmm. Um, so The Batwoman is a 1968 film uh, directed by René Cardona, Mm-hmm. Um, who again is a director who'd been going for a long time at this point. You know, he's in, he's Cuban, went to Hollywood, worked in their Spanish language films at the same time as all these other guys, late 20s, early 30s, came, comes to Mexico and becomes part of the industry. Um, he uh, makes the, the Batwoman, La Mujer Murcielago, and, you know, it's very much a film that uh, is now, I think, so this is part of, it was part of the Locarno series. Uh, it's being brought out in a restored version. Um, it's now on Mubi. Uh, and it's this beautiful film, which has a female Batman, essentially. So she's not Batgirl. Mm. She uh, is separate to Batman, but the visual language of that film is very much the language of the Bruce Wayne Adam West, particularly contemporaneous TV version Mm -hmm. that's going on in the United States, or has just gone on in 66 and 67. Um, And it's made by the Calderon family, who are this big filmmaking dynasty of a father who originally opened all these cinemas all over the Southwest and through Mexico, um, and began making films for his cinemas. And then his three sons who took it over took over the filmmaking. Um, and uh, the Batwoman is is not something that's necessarily come out of classical Mexican film. I mean, so from the, it hasn't necessarily come out from the institution, but the daughter or the grandniece of, of the producer of this film, as, and I think you said this in your, um, in your podcast about the film, she restored the film, but with help from these different agencies. So, that film was there again. It was available to be shown at Locarno and now on Mubi, right? Mm-hmm. So it has this kind of resurgence and 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 reemergence into the mainstream. And now people like me who have seen a lot of the wrestling genre, which is mm-hmm. the genre it ties in as well. Yes, yeah, are kind of being able to appreciate it and see it. And I I've never seen the Batwoman, but when people met me and knew I kind of did classical or Mexican, they'd be like Batwoman, and I'd be like, oh, I kind of of it but I've not seen it because I don't think I've ever been able to see it you mm. know I don't know what else um to I mean it's it's one of the ones coming out on the indicator series another you know it's coming out again as a DVD so I think I mean but that's again for quite a cult audience but I wonder if it's going to now become more canonized and more seen you know this as a shift away from the kind of classical male auteurs back down to industry films that are um popular, funny. I mean, it's what people were watching in the 60s. Sure. They were watching films like The Batwoman, you know, um, and that's And it intersects so interestingly with with Bond, with Batman, 
with the wrestling films. Yeah, I kind of, you know, I mean, talk about yeah. diverse and pop. Uh, and there's also quite a lot of focus on gadgets and interior decor and, you know, uh, uh, fashion, yeah, the, the outfits that she wears. It's so interesting. It's so She wears more clothes when she's not being Batwoman and she's just yeah. having a drink. She's actually much more clothed. But when she's Batwoman, she's in quite a small bikini and and does a lot of action scenes, including fighting, in that bikini. And it's amazing. You know, so but she manages to wear it and be quite strong. And all the policemen around her are never being lurid or lewd or, you know, she, she is she's a professional fighter mm. or crime fighter. And and they're all being quite respectful. I mean, it's quite. You know, apart from the very end of the film, when she kind of goes, oh, look, there's a mouse, I think, which is annoying. And I think you mentioned this in your podcast. It's it's you know, the sexual politics of that film are incredible. Mm. So I can see why it would be there for cult appropriation, because it has for the contemporary audience. You know, it has that kind of focus on replicating the Adam West series, but replicating it in a slightly different way that's maybe a little bit off. But people kind of like that in cult cinema, you know, because it's off, 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 obviously much lower budgeted, but it's still quite, it's still quite amazing. What, what do you think is significant about this series, which we must thank Mubi for, right? And kind of what do you think it teaches us or what new avenues does it open in our appreciation and understanding of Mexican cinema? <laughs> I think it, it kind of highlights the popular genre elements huh. of, of Mexican cinema, the extent to which um, it's driven by melodrama, music, action, horror, comedy, you know, so uh, it's a shift away from that nationalist retelling of indigenous lives in the countryside. It's a shift away from thinking about the revolution. It's a shift away from thinking about um, the tortured couple who must be, you know, the, the the new Adam and Eve. It's a shift away from um, a lot of the staples which classical Mexican cinema was only ever accessed by. Mm -hmm. So uh, these are five films that people would really enjoy watching. And, you know, I'm happy because I'm teaching Latin American cinema and I'm going to show some of them on my modules. I'm like, yeah. my students are going to love this. I struggle to show them classical Mexican films because I think, so they're much more accessible. They might be transnationalized. You know, they might have like the Batwoman, mm. a kind of a imitation of class of uh, a US text, but they're also quite specifically Mexican in their wrestling aspects, mm. um, in the way that they focus on the importance of the fight wrestling scene, which, you know, Mexican wrestling is a popular sport and you could only really see it at the cinema. So mm. reproducing it, but doing it, according to international genres like the Bond film, like earlier horror films, but by late 60s, they're almost always Bond-like or Batman-like, mm. you know. Um, it's really important. So I think people are going to love these five films because they will be uh, surprised. There's none of the stereotypical associations we have with Mexico in these five films. They're really trying to make people look at the variety look at um, how entertaining these films are, to look at how beautiful they are. Like the, the production values of a lot of the 
uh, of them, Mas Fuerte Que El Amor, uh, mm. Stronger Than Love, are beautiful. The production values in Trotakai is are, are beautiful. Mm. Miroslava is beautiful. Her clothes are beautiful. The set design is beautiful. So it it kind of emphasizes, I would like to emphasize the pleasure of these five films, but also their variety, you know, mm. and I think it counters a lot of the fixed ideas people have about classical Mexican cinema beforehand. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dolores. And I'm only sorry that it has to be so short, uh, but I appreciate your talking to us. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>